If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. This week we're hearing from forensic pathologist Dr. Brooke Magnanti, also known as Belle de Jour, the writer behind Diary of a Call Girl. She is going to be examining and explaining all the gory mystery of what happens to our bodies when we die. Before we get started though, we're delighted to announce that in six episodes time we'll be celebrating the 100th episode of Philosophy for Our Times. We're really proud to have reached this point, and that's because of you tuning in every week to hear about everything from string theory to the philosophy of community politics, so thank you. To say thanks, we're announcing Philosophy Fest, an entire week's worth of bonus episodes, additional content and special guests. You, the listeners, also have the chance to vote for your favourite episode from the series so far. That's nearly 100 episodes, so get looking through our back catalogue. We'll be re-releasing the winning episode with new content, including an exclusive Q&A. To get involved, tweet us at iai underscore tv using the hashtag philosophyfest, or email us at podcast at artandideas.org to vote for your favourite episode. The winning podcast will be announced in our next bulletin in two weeks' time. We'll also be doing a fundraiser to support our work. To donate, you can go to iai.tv and donate to the Art and Ideas Trust. There'll be more info at the end of this episode, but for now, just enjoy the show. Thanks. I'd like to start with a, a quote from actually one of my favourite songs by a Scottish artist called Momus. And the name of the song is What Will Death Be Like? The content of a song is actually very detailed things that death will not be like, because there are very few people who have ever had any sort of uh, near-death experience or have been declared legally dead for any period of time who can tell us very much about it. And obviously, the longer you're dead, the less you can tell us about it. For those of you who aren't aware of my background, I was once played by Billy Piper on television. Uh, This is not about the Billy Piper part of my life. This is actually about what I did before I worked in the sex industry. I worked in the death industry. My PhD is actually in forensic pathology from the University of Sheffield, and I worked at the Medico Legal Center there for three years. And I was particularly interested in and researching unidentifiable or unidentified bodies that had gone through some kind of stage of decomposition. Now, obviously, those are rarer than the people who just die and get autopsied. So quite a lot of the work that we dealt with on a day-to-day basis was very 
routine death, the average deaths that all of us will experience someday. And I wrote a book slightly influenced by my experiences there, but it's actually a crime novel. But apparently the mortuary scenes are really realistic. So if that is your thing, then by all means. Right, so, and I'll start with the obligatory trigger warning. With death, as with sex, because I have worked in this area, my sense of what is appropriate is completely off. <laughs> I have literally no idea when I am saying things that are offensive to people about sex or death. Right, so, in the mortuary where I worked in Sheffield, this is a quote that was on a plaque, um, really right by the stands where the autopsies were performed. And it's by Giovanni Battista Moriani, who was the father of modern pathology, pretty much pathology as it's practiced today in this sort of anatomical sense. And the quote roughly translated is that those who have inspected many bodies have at least learnt to doubt, while others who are ignorant of anatomy and do not take the trouble to attend it, are in no doubt at all. Now, the word autopsy means to see something for yourself. And there is a very essential conflict in forensic pathology. When you are examining the causes of death, these causes are not always straightforward. You can't always know what the exact true answer is. However, because you're working in the legal context, the court demands some kind of categorization, some kind of answer. Did this person die by misadventure? Was it foul play of some kind? Was it just a natural death? And when that's not left, then we have the incredibly unsatisfying open verdict. But it's always important to keep in mind, and especially when you see uh, how investigation of death is portrayed on television, the certainty with which you see forensic scientists acting is in no way realistic at all. Often, rather than coming up with a definitive answer, forensic scientists are looking to eliminate the things that are wrong. And of course, there's the saying that once you've eliminated the things that are wrong, what is left must be the truth, no matter how unlikely it is. However, very often, what could be encompassed within the truth is much more confusing than you might anticipate. As I mentioned, my uh, PhD, which had the very awkward title of Macrobioinformatics, the application of chemoinformatics technology to databases of human skeletal remains, could be more accurately called adventures in decomposition. And in particular, the word taphonomy comes up over and over again, which is the study of what happens to the body from the moment of death, whether there is a moment of death is, of course, debatable, all the way through to skeletalization and all the wonderful fragrant steps in between. So, is there a moment of death? Well, this is a very interesting question because, of course, the things that in the legal context people are interested in are uh, what is the cause of death? You know, was somebody stabbed? Was somebody shot? Did they have a heart attack? What is the manner of death? How did they die? Was it a good death, as the old coroners of the Middle Ages might say? Was it a murder? Was it a natural death? Did they have a misadventure? Which is probably one of my favorite words because it just means pissed and fell over. Nine times out of ten. Uh, is there a moment of death? Well, you can have the moment when doctors declare you dead, which, of course, they don't always get right. There are certainly enough people, if you go, and go on Reddit and say, um, 
you know, search for people who have been declared dead. There are endless AMAs of people who have at some point been declared dead because of an accident or because of a stroke, and then they're back here to tell you what it's like on the other side. Also as well, this causes problems for the forensic scientist because there isn't a, a definitive on-off switch. Death is more of a process, a series of processes that start to take place in the body uh, from the point at which your brain becomes unresponsive. And generally what's happening during decomposition is you are no longer producing ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is something that is created daily in the body in very large amounts. All of your cells use it. It is basically like the cash card of your cells talking to each other. As soon as you are no longer making this, then things start to die off, but it doesn't all happen at the same time. Some of the earliest stuff to go is the stuff that is very um, heavily using ATP, and that would be your eyes and your brain which leads us to possibly my favorite quote ever from one of the first postmortems I ever did. I obviously was not the lead pathologist on it. It was a gentleman named Ken, and we found the gentleman's heart. He'd been dead some few weeks. We found what looked like it was probably some kind of pulmonary uh, cardio obstruction. That was declared the cause of death. And it was at this point I said to Ken, don't you even want to look at the brain? And he said... It's brain soup in there, not going in unless we have to. So the things that are very ATP intensive, they start to liquefy fairly quickly. If you look at the history of burials, if you look at, for example, the ancient Egyptians, what were the organs that they removed during embalming processes and mummification processes and put into little jars? It's the stuff that basically turns into organ soup really quickly. So it's actually quite practical, as well as, you know, you end up attaching a religious reason to it, but it's intensely practical. Nobody wants to go to a funeral and see grandma's brain dribbling out of her ears. Or maybe you do, I don't know. So there were three processes that happen fairly quickly, which you have probably heard of. These are the mortises. And the first one is alger mortis. This is the cooling of the body. So this is a thing that you often hear about for pathologists on television shows. You know, they get out the rectal thermometer and they take a body temperature and they say he died between this time and this time ago. That's because there is kind of a standard approximation of how quickly your body starts cooling after you die. Now, uh, two degrees C in the first hour, then one C per hour until you reach room temperature, whatever room temperature happens to be. I am originally from the state of Florida in the United States. Room temperature is probably getting on for 30 to 32 degrees. And this is, yes, even inside at the hospital at the university. In Britain, it's a bit cooler than that. So people will be cooling off for a long time. And obviously, as you can probably predict, this is something that isn't always linear. This is kind of a linear-ish approximation. You know, obviously, if your body goes somewhere really cold, you're going to be cooling a bit faster and a bit longer. If you're in water, your body will be cooling pretty quickly. So when you see people sort of predicting with any kind of certainty what that means with regards to time of death, it's a bit of a fudge. Liver mortis is the second one that starts to happen. Now, this is what's happening to your blood. It starts 
to settle. And where does it settle? Well, whatever position you're in. So if, for example, I were to sit down and die in this chair, which I hope doesn't happen because I'd miss the Q&A session, but let's say I did and I died here, the blood in my body just, it's no longer being circulated, there's no longer the pressure coming back, driving it back through, so it just starts settling in the tissues that are closest to the ground. Now, the exception to this is right at the pressure points. So the blood starts settling lower to the ground, but right where my butt is touching the chair, this pressure, like when you press on the pad of your finger and it looks a bit white. So somebody who died laying on their back, the blood is collected in the tissues of the back, except for where they were pressing on the ground. Why this is of use to forensic scientists is because it makes it a pretty easy way to tell if a body was moved. If you went into a house and something looked like a crime scene and you found this fellow, but these tissues were facing up, you'd think somebody's been in here and they've turned him over for whatever reason. And apart from that as well, the amount of lividity can again give you an indication of how long somebody's been dead. Now, when people get to these stages, they are dead, 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 dead. They are not coming back to tell us about the light. Finally, the mortis that everybody knows about, and that's rigor mortis, hardening. And stiffness begins about three hours after death, and it passes. It is present uh, for about a day or two. And obviously, it reaches a peak. The other things that we contend with, and then this is people getting even more dead. They are so dead by this point. Uh, normally, when somebody is freshly dead, they just smell like a human. You smell a little bit of sweat or maybe a little bit of human waste. Uh, after a while, you get these two guys show up. They are unique to decomposition. They are putrescine and cadaverine. Um, never let it be said that chemists don't have a sense of humor. They are very, very, very characteristic smells, and almost everyone has an instant repulsion to them. And this is the bit where I'm going to say, if, if in the unlikely event you find yourself in a mortuary and you see someone like me with the big gloves on, digging into something sticky, don't reach for the Vicks VapoRub. That's a myth that's been perpetuated by television and films. It does not overcome the scent of death at all. It just gives you minty death, and which is like worse, <laughs> and you can't get rid of it. And then it ruins vapor rub for you forever, because then you just associate it with death. So don't do the vapor rub, and, and feel free to write angry letters the next time you see on a BBC drama, you know, scenes of crime officers putting the vapor rub under their noses. They totally shouldn't be doing that. What are other things that happen as we're continuing along our process of being dead? Well, if it's dry enough, you can mummify. Quite a lot of the, decom the decomps that I saw in Sheffield were people who had died indoors in the winter with the heating on. Um, so unsurprisingly, they start to dry out. Now, obviously, there are cultures that have tried to accelerate this process because it's a really great way of preserving meat. You're basically making human salami. If, for example, you are buried in very alkaline soil or if you happen to be trapped underwater while you're dead and uh, the combination of the pressure and the absence of any kind of aerobic activity can basically turn the fat in your body into soap. Um, we had a few of those when I was in Sheffield, kind of not so famously. We had one that was a pig 
and it was actually locked in a cage. And that was mine. Uh, they brought it to me and they said, we don't even know if this is human. Because that's like, question number one, is it dead? Question number two, is it human? Reached my hand in, grabbed a bone, wrenched it out. It was a pig's scapula. And so the police went, yeah, we don't care. We went home. I'm like, but somebody locked a pig in a cage and put it in a reservoir. You don't care? No, they don't care. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Maggots, that's the one you always hear about. Uh, blow flies, bottle flies, windows open or found in the woods. These can be used to give you a time since death, although that varies very highly. If you have um, nothing exposed to the air except maybe your eyelids and your lips, which is the sort of thing they go for us, also your ass and your vagina. Um, those things will take a little while to settle in, whereas if you've been sliced open or blown open, it happens a lot faster. But it's a useful tool in the toolbox. And then as well, there's just predation by your uh, happy flying friends. This can happen extremely quickly. In less than 48 hours in states like Texas and Florida, you can be completely turned into a cow skeleton. It's magic. The truth about cats and dogs, if your pets do not have a way out of your house and you die at home, unfortunately, you are totally a source of meat to them. And also less fortunately, like maggots, they will go for the soft bits first. Your cat will eat your face if you don't have a cat flap. Get a cat flap, okay? <laughs> Just if you think you might die lightly at home sometime. Um, there have been some really extreme stories with these, and again, with uh, animals that get very hungry and are locked inside and bodies haven't been found. How long does it take before somebody who dies unexpectedly at home is found? It's a surprisingly long time, even in very crowded Britain. Um, it could take anywhere from 8 to 28 days. Sometimes if people smell you, they will not even call the police. They just think, oh, they haven't seen you in a while. Uh, famously in London, there was a lady who died whose body was not discovered for years. People had noted the smell and her rent was still going out of her account, and it was only when she got so far into arrears with her rent. There's a film made about it called Dreams of a Life. It's really sad and incredible because they go around to her friends and they talk about her family, and everyone just assumed, because she was a singer and a part-time model, that she was off living an extraordinary life somewhere. They just thought, oh, Joyce disappeared, and then now she's probably famous or something. The reality of people who are um, undiscovered and die at home is that they're usually not elderly because they're very good elderly services. They are more usually young or middle-aged. Those are the bodies that'll sit longer because if someone hasn't heard from you in a month, they might not think that's unusual. 
And as well, for a lot of people, there were a lot of middle-aged men that we had decomposing at home. Again, the social links really aren't there. Men who've been divorced, lost contact with their families. Heart disease, obviously, is a big killer for the 40s to 60s. And, uh, and it was extremely sad stuff. But yeah, get a cat flap. Okay, so now we've had all the gruesome stuff. Now that I talk about this instead of talking so much about sex, death is kind of a fascinating thing because what is death? It's just basically not life. What are the things that drive us? Well, fear of death is a really big one. And we live in a society now where people who have had personal interaction with death, with dead bodies, are actually fairly rare. So there's a couple of questions I hear over and over. I'll just get those out of the way so that we don't have to have them during the Q&A. The first one is, what's the best way to hide a body? <laughs> that is like number one. <laughs> what is the best way to hide a body? I would like to believe it's because 90% of the people that I encounter are budding crime novelists who are just trying to figure out a plot point. However, statistically speaking, I think you all have some, you know, unexplored issues. <laughs> And I always say to people, I sound like one of those really boring people saying, do you know the best way to not get pregnant or not get an STI is not to have sex at all or only to masturbate? The best way to hide a body is not to kill someone, okay? <laughs> uh, there aren't great ways to hide a body. Famously, in the UK, it's always the man walking his dog comes across a body under a hedge somewhere. There's a man walking his dog at all points in Britain everywhere. This is what I've discovered. I live in the far northwest of Scotland. There's a man walking his dog there right now. Yes, he's probably German in here on holiday. Nevertheless, the rule is true. We have uh, a fairly high-density country. We have a fairly high-density country with a lot of CCTV cameras. In terms of actually unidentifiable bodies, per year in the UK, it's about 12. There are a lot more decompositions than that, but these are people who maybe died at home or somebody who's fallen off a mountain and he's totally got his wallet in his pocket. The actually unidentifiable stuff, the stuff that drives the crime fiction industry, kind of doesn't exist. There aren't really jobs. There weren't too many jobs for people like me. There were two of us who got our PhDs at the, at the same time the other guy got the job. So the other best way to hide a body is don't kill your dad. A Somali fellow who was killed by his son and his grandson, they hid his body in a bathtub of sand in the basement for several years, which is actually a fairly good... And then they told all of the friends and family that he had gone home, and then they dressed as him to continue collecting his benefits checks. The body was actually discovered because they decided to sell the house, which you, it's like, you would not believe what it does to house values if you have a corpse in your basement. It just threw the floor, they wrapped him up in duvets, and they threw him by the side of the motorway in Leeds. Uh, he came to us. Um, and there's a really long and it's interesting to me kind of story how we eventually got the identification. This went out on Crime Watch. This was one of my first times at Sheffield, so it was super exciting and I thought it was going to be that exciting all the time and it totally wasn't. So the other question that gets asked a lot is what does fiction get right and wrong? I mean, you know, God bless Margaret Rutherford and Angela Lansbury and Midsummer Murders and all these places having you believe that everyone is getting killed around here. That's one of the big things. Uh, one of the other things that typically goes wrong in fiction is the bodies aren't wet enough. Stuff is liquefying 
all the time. Uh, we are mostly water, as you probably know. So these are uh, the kinds of things that when you see even quite graphic scenes on television, they have actually been sanitized for television. Even the stuff you recoil from, even you know, Silence of the Lambs level stuff has actually been cleaned up quite a bit. So onto the really fun bit. <laughs> Near-death experiences and people who've been declared dead. What can they tell us about the beginning of this long and wonderful journey? A 17th century French manuscript that appears to have recorded one of the first uh, first-person accounts in Western medicine of somebody's near-death experience. And it's totally the classic, the light going to the light, and then feeling there was unfinished business and having to come back. And this is something that really has gained in currency since the 1960s. The reality of the near-death experience, for what little research has been done on it, because it's the kind of thing that's really difficult to get funding for. And outside of people like you know, Chris French at uh, Goldsmiths, not a lot of people in this country doing this research. Uh, it's not so much of interest to medicine, and it's also not really of interest to philosophers either. There have been a lot of theories put forward about what is causing, you know, the narrowing effect, the light and all of that. Is it apoxia? Is it, you know, just a lack of oxygen in the brain? Is it the pineal gland dumping out all kinds of hormones? You know, is it some kind of shock? People have noticed that if you inject ketamine, and again, don't try this at home unless you're already doing it, in which case, totally continue. Uh, you can replicate a near-death experience. I'm not sure if you could get funding for that, but, you know, more power to you. So the actual classic near-death experience where, you know, your life flashes before your eyes, you float out from above your body, you see the light, you embrace the light, and an angel or your grand steps up and goes, no, you have work left to do. Go back and live your life. It's actually fairly rare. It's about 6 to 7% of people who have uh, a short death experience or some other kind of massive trauma that makes them seem to be dying. If you go looking on Reddit for people who have been declared clinically dead, it's really super interesting. Um, and these were some quotes that I just loved because they were so frank. I experienced something and that something was nothing. This is someone who described their two times being declared dead as being a bit like a disappointing nap. Uh, if the doctors wouldn't have said anything, I would have just thought I took a dreamless nap. I remember passing out and having a sensation like I was leaving a dark room and moving outside into the sun. Now, this was somebody who did have more of your classic near-death experience. Uh, everyone kept asking me what it was like. I always say it was indistinguishable from sleeping. I didn't see a light. I didn't have a flashback. And it was cold, but from what I understand, that was actually shock. The interesting thing is that whether people had the classic near-death experience experience, or if they just experience it like a blip in time that you wake up from, they all seem to have the same conclusion, which is, enjoy your life now. <laughs> Being dead was not great. Do more with what you've got. And this kind of, um, because I, as a child, saw the world through the lens of really shitty sci-fi, uh, there is this book called Redbeard by Michael Resnick. He's talking to a mutant who cannot sleep, and he's about to kill him, and he says, aren't you afraid of death? And the mutant says, no, I've always been curious what it's been like to lose consciousness, because, of course, he doesn't sleep. And in fact, when you think about our experiences of sleeping, they seem to map not too badly onto people who've had near-death experiences. Sometimes you're just asleep. Sometimes you have that weird little struggle 
and you see a thing, and then you're asleep. So don't fear the reaper, and I will leave you with the immortal words of Samuel Langhorne Clemens, who said, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for listening. We'd like to pass on a short message on behalf of the Art and Ideas Trust, who support what we do at the Institute of Art and Ideas. At the IAI, we believe that philosophy and big ideas should be more than a nice occasional addition to our everyday lives, but an essential determinant of who we are and what is possible. That's why we do what we do. And why all of our debates, talks, articles, courses, and indeed this podcast are made available online to everybody for free. As an organisation, it is our mission to expand the spaces where original and challenging ideas can flourish and keep these ideas accessible to all, but we need your support. Through a one-off donation to the Art and Ideas Trust, you can help us continue to create content that is inspiring and accessible to all. Please go to iai.tv for more information and to support our mission. Thank you.